So, a guy falls in a hole. His name's Willie. He has a buddy named Joe. We'll get to Joe in a little bit. But Willie falls in this hole, and he is stuck. And he looks up, and all he can see is a little piece of sky. And he can see people walking by. And Willie's kind of looking up and kind of calling for help a little bit. Most people just walk by and kind of laugh or ignore him. This isn't a true story, by the way. Just, I didn't want you to be stressed. If that's causing you stress, you can relax. It's apocryphal. So people walk by, and Willie's kind of wanting to get out of this hole. And finally, one person walks by, and they, they see him, and they have compassion on Willie. And so the person writes out a prayer and drops him in the hole and walks away. And Willie's thinking, great, thank you. That was, that was really nice. I, I appreciate your prayer, but didn't do him a lot of good. Another person walks by looks down, sees Willie, has great compassion for them. And they draw plans for a ladder with aluminum and pop rivets and a hinge, and they write that and fold it all up, and they drop the plans for the ladder down the hole. And again, Willie goes, great, that's really useful for me, and stuck in this hole with no equipment to to have plans for a ladder. Another person walks by, and this person's wearing robes, has great compassion, calls down to Willie. And this person says, well, that's your fate. That's, that's, that's what's written. That's what's going to happen to you. So relax and accept it. And walks away. That doesn't make Willie feel very good at all. Another person comes by, looks down, has compassion on Willie. Willie says, can you help me out? And says, well, really, in the great circle of life, you'll die in the hole. And then you'll come back as a, a, a being that won't have be stuck in a hole. You'll be reincarnated. So you Rejoice. And they walk away. And that doesn't make Willie feel very good at all either. And then a guy comes walking by with a big book that says Dianetics on it. And he says, hey, relax, rejoice, Willie. You're going to be beamed up to Xenu in the mothership pretty soon, so no problems. And Willie's just confused by Xenu. He's never heard of Xenu and doesn't know what that's all about. Donald Trump walks by and says, you're terrible. You're a terrible person. You deserve it. Hillary Clinton walks by doesn't even see the hole. But then somebody says you should go back because there's probably votes in that. She starts a multi-billion dollar program for counseling for people in holes. Did I balance that? That was good. No one's offended. All right. That's good. A lot of people walking by this hole. People are trying to help. I mean, the goal is to, to help this person for the most part, but nobody seems to be doing it. And finally, Willie looks up and he sees his friend Joe. He says, Joe. Can you help me out? I'm stuck in this hole. I don't know. I, I'm stuck. And Joe goes, just a second. And he jumps in the hole. And Willie goes, Joe, what are you doing? Now we're both stuck in this hole. And Joe goes, yeah. But I've been here before, Willie. I know the way out. Laughter, laughter. And the joke okay. Cute little story. It, it, this is good. It works on a bunch of different levels about comparative religions and all sorts of interesting ways to look at things. But the relationship between Joe and Willie is the important part. And that's kind of a nice little framing part for what we want to take a look at today. Is that Joe and Willie had a relationship and Joe did something that nobody else did. Everybody wanted to help, but not everybody did that. And relationships are going to be the key of what I want to talk about today. In the same way that our relationship with Jesus was key when we started looking at the Lord's table. And that's why I wanted to start with that today, to kind of set a tone and put the first things, the important things first. We 
as a people, as a human being, are created to be in community. We are not created to be by ourselves. We are built in our DNA to live in community. And it starts from God. God is the original community. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. A community. And our community is with Christ, and then our community is with other believers. And we'll be, you'll hear that thread come through everything I talk about today. will be about relationships. Relationships with God, relationships with one another in different contexts. And to look at that, I'd like to, to kind of look at his word, obviously, today. And as you're listening, this is kind of a side note. We have a mission statement for our church. We don't have a motto for our church. And when Paul and I and Krista and Emma Hewitt were in China, we spoke with one of the churches about and kind of suggested a motto, and it happened to be the verse that we're going to take a look at today. And you might think of that in the back of your head. Does this make a good verse for a church? Proclamation is another word you're going to hear a lot about today. Relationships, proclamation, and a little bit of it comes back to Mike last week spoke about our purpose as Christians. Give a wonderful message on purpose. And that was for you as an individual, and today I'm talking about the same thing, except it's our purpose as a church, our collective purpose, the team's purpose. And so it'll all be wrapped up with relationship and proclamation and our purpose. And so we start, if you're taking notes, you can follow the notes, but we start with a, always start with a question, the central question, the question that sums it all up. And the question is very simple, is what is our purpose at Grace Point? What is our purpose as a local church? Why do we exist? Are we here just to show up on Sunday mornings and do some things? Or is there something bigger at work? The text to answer that question is Colossians 1.28, which is, and this is in the New American Standard, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we might present every man complete in Christ. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for your word. Ask that you would uh, lend strength to my words by your spirit, and that, again, your spirit would be what everyone hears, not my words. And Father, we thank you again that we can be gathered together in freedom, freedom from persecution, thanks to the men and women that have gone before us, and that we can gather together in your name. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, Colossians. Got to start with context. Uh, Colossians is uh, my favorite author, Paul. Um, I don't know if he's the best author. I mean, everybody has their favorites, I suppose. But it seems to make Paul's method of communicating makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, this was written while Paul was an older man. There's a genuine unretouched photograph of him right there. Uh, Paul's imprisoned in Rome. It's A.D. 60, 6-0. And it was a big year. Paul was very productive that year. Wrote uh, a letter to the Ephesians, letter to the uh, of Philemon. And he's writing a church to, uh, or writing a letter to the church in Colossae, which is in Turkey, uh, where the little circle is right there. And uh, things aren't good in Colossae. He's gotten a report from one of his good friends, who was one of the missionaries that went out with him. And uh, Colossae is kind of a young church. It's a fairly new church. And it's got some similarities to, to us in that the culture in Colossae is very, an, not anti-Christian per se, as much as it's for everything else. And there's a lot of false teachers in this culture. And there's a lot of people in Colossae um, that the church was immediately kind of attacked, if you will, by the culture. And it was sort of 
now you don't just need to believe in Jesus to be saved. You believe in Jesus and you do these other five things. Or you believe in Jesus and you do this. And they kept adding to the requirements for salvation. And it's not real specific, some of those things, but we have some ideas. But we know that there were false teachers and that the culture was not real supportive of Christians. The church, just like we are, was made up of people that weren't genetically Jewish, that they were, um, well, we kind of say Greek, but they lived in, they weren't um, from the Jewish race. And it was a very diverse culture. There's a lot of different things going on in Colossae. So, um, Kind of similar. It was a big trading center, and it was kind of fallen on harder times. The trade routes have moved, uh, but it was a, their history there was very diverse, very um, was wealthy at one time, and not terribly dissimilar to the things we would see around us. Paul has gotten a report that in Colossae, the churches are starting to kind of fall away from the word. They're adding to the word. There's false teachers. And so the purpose of Paul's letter is to, on one level, correct that and say, you guys need to wake up, church, and get back to the important things. But he's also encouraging them. And so it's a great letter of encouragement to local churches, which is probably why it speaks to us so well, because we could always use encouragement, and we always need to be brought back to what the Word has to say. The theme of Colossians is in uh, chapter 3, verse 11, is that Christ is all and in all. And so the supremacy of Christ is the most important theme of Colossians, and you can back that up to different parts, but that will be everything we talk about today should point to how important Jesus Christ is. And so if we look at this verse, we always have to keep that context in mind. Let's start with a little observation. Uh, Put up the the word there, and when you start to break down a verse, and we're only going to do one verse today, you start with, okay, what do you see? Well, the first thing I see... Okay, that's a little bit dark. But it begins and ends with Jesus Christ. Well, that's a nice little encapsulation, isn't it? The first thing is the most important thing, Jesus Christ, him. And it ends with Christ. That's good writing. Okay, start and end with the most important thing. But then you look at, okay, is there anything repeated? Well, every man, interesting, every person. Oh, so this isn't just for us or we're just for white people, or just for the Colossians that go to church. Every man, and that's pretty simple, young, old, rich, poor, white, brown, black, you name it, everyone, even people whose political identities are different than ours, even people whose lifestyles are radically different than ours, every man. Other thing that kind of stands out, it's we. It's not you, not Gary Nock, not the pastor, it's we. Now, in the near context, Paul's talking about himself and Epaphras, his buddy, and the leadership, certainly. But taken outwards, the more distant context, that applies to each one of us as individuals. There might be an emphasis on leaders, but it applies to every member of the church. And that's kind of an important part of this. And then there's these really important things. The first verb, proclaim, and then that there's this great, I call it the so what statement, but why? And that's so that. And what a great thing. Paul's going to state something, and he's going to tell you why. I like that a lot. Verbs are a big deal, and we want to pay attention to verbs. First verb is the really important one, the one you've got to really pay attention to, and that's proclaim. And then we have admonishing, teaching, and presenting as verbs. So we're going to pay attention to those three verbs, or four verbs, with the main one being the first. We all good so far? Okay, let's break it down. 
That's the observation. So let's take a look at what does it mean. Let's start with proclamation. And I'll let the Olympic athletes intrigue you. Proclamation, it's written out in in Greek there. It's kathangelo, I think. Uh, It's a fairly unique word. So we want to define proclaim carefully because that's our most important verb. And what it means is to announce, to celebrate, to declare, to make known, and generally that means verbally, to do it literally with your mouth. It's kind of a rare word in the New Testament. It only shows up about 18 times, and it mostly shows up in Acts. Now, if you know much about Acts, that might make sense. Proclamation goes with that. What it does, the other things, defining it, it's a specific act. It's something that you do intentionally, and it's kind of decisive. And it's, again, almost always out loud with your mouth, but it also involves nonverbal proclamation. We just experienced nonverbal proclamation a little bit earlier this morning. We proclaimed through our actions our belief in Jesus Christ. Great example of this is the Apostle Paul. He's, his life was proclamation from the time he was converted on the road to Damascus until the time he died. His lifestyle was proclaiming. He obviously did it verbally constantly. He did some great proclaiming and writing, but he also did it through his actions. This summer, we get to watch the uh, Summer Olympics, which are pretty exciting. Got some great Olympic athletes up there. And we'll give bonus points to anyone who can identify all those. Um, Our athletes, when they wear our uniform, are proclaiming allegiance to the United States of America. They represent us, correct? And so Jesse Owens, Michael Ruzioni, et cetera, et cetera, their actions proclaim kind of who and what we are. They represent us. And if they're like these people, they represent us very, very well. They go forward. They acted honorably. They didn't do weird drugs to get advantages. They competed well. Win or lose, they competed well, and that makes us feel good. They had great pride. When they walk around wearing that uniform, they talk about what a big deal it is to have USA written on the front of your jersey. And their name might be on the back of the jersey, but that's not the important part. They're proclaiming through their actions. It's a good example of that. They do that in action. And we have a uniform as well of Jesus Christ. And we put on the new garments it talks about in Scripture. It's the same idea. And that we should be, through our actions, proclaiming verbally. But also, are we walking around as if we're wearing that uniform of believer in Christ? like a big cross on our chest. I don't know what it would look like. But we'd, the idea is that we're, we're, we're walking around with that same sense of pride an Olympic athlete has and same sense of almost responsibility of representing somebody as we proclaim. Now, you can proclaim verbally and you can proclaim by yelling at people. I don't know if that's good proclamation. I don't remember a lot of instances of Jesus Christ standing on street corners with a PA and a sign that says, Turn or Burn and yelling at people for being sinners. He did it through relationships. We'll come back to that. The full thought, if you look at that, that we proclaim him, actually it looks like this. If Paul wrote in English, he'd say it this way. Him we proclaim. Jesus is most important. Him we proclaim. It always comes back and reflects back to that full thought. It's Jesus that we're proclaiming. Really smart guy, J. Vernon McGee, put it this way. 
The gospel is not what we preach, it is whom we preach. It's easy to get wrapped up in doctrine, and doctrine's important. It's easy to get wrapped up in different parts of what we do, but we need to always come back. Jesus Christ is our, that's all we have. That's the most important thing we have, and everything comes from that. And Paul gets that by how he writes. Following in the footsteps of Jesus, we can proclaim, and we can do a good job, like athletes, like the Olympics. And then it moves on to the ways we do that. So that's the main thing, we proclaim. And then it gives two verbs underneath of how we proclaim. And that's admonishing and teaching. And they are different words, certainly, but I want you to think of those as a a joined pair, like a coin. One side of the coin is admonishing, one side is teaching. And it's kind of simple. One part's like, don't do this, and the other part is like, do this. Well... Let's start with admonishing, because that's the first one in there. And admonishing is pretty simple. It means to warn, to warn, to um, don't do this. It's kind of a rare word, but a good example of admonishing is a lighthouse. This is the Gia Fortress Lighthouse in Macau. It's been there for three, 400 years. Uh, it's an old, old lighthouse, and that lighthouse warns ships, don't run into the island. That's important. If you remember the story about the battleship that sees the light on the horizon and it radios in saying, hey, you need to turn because I'm the big battleship and we're the flagship, and the lighthouse goes back and goes, yeah, we're the lighthouse. Uh, I'd recommend you turn first, but it's your call. The idea is that warning is important. That lighthouse had a real specific purpose, but maybe that's not the best example we have. Maybe think of this one. That's personal. <laughs> okay? That's my speed. When I see those, those are very convicting because it's not the other guy's speed. That's my speed, and it's warning me. It's admonishing me, you're going too fast. Okay? It's a very personal message, and it's warning me. Speed signs are a good example of that. One-on-one relationships. Personal is better admonishing. Then we have teaching. Now, teaching is a really common word. Teaching means teaching. It's just exactly what you would think it would mean. There's no great hidden message in that. And teaching is a big deal for me because my former lifetime, I was a, a teacher and a coach, and I did a lot of, you know, teaching was an important thing. And what you'll discover about good teachers, and we have a couple of them in this room, is that it's about relationships still. I can teach any class. I can walk in and, and, and teach a lesson, but do people learn from it? You only learn when you have a relationship with the teacher. And the better your relationship, the better your education is. And that's why you'll see Mr. Mayhew is a great example of that, that the young Mr. Mayhew. Uh, I don't think I've gone to a high school event where I don't see Dave there because he's in relationship with these kids. And if you ask him, I don't, know, I don't want to put you on the spot, but you ask Dave, what does he teach? He'll probably say students. Okay, what do you teach the students? Well, math and problem solving and things like that. But it's, it's about the students. It's about relationship. And so that's, again, it's easy to yell at people, but to have a relationship is a little bit harder. So our culture tends not to look at teaching and admonishing as super positive things. And there's, there's little things that teaching can be done very subtly. When I was in the classroom, I had to lecture a lot because I taught history and civics. And if you had somebody screwing around, 
it was real simple. Let's say Carlos was my trouble student. I, if he was screwing around, I would just keep lecturing without doing anything. I wouldn't say anything. I would just stand next to him, right? And he would start behaving, and everybody would see it. And nobody had to get all worked up about it. If he was really screwing, I'd just put my hand on my shoulder, his shoulder while I'm talking. I'd keep lecturing. And he got the idea. I didn't embarrass him. So teaching doesn't have to be an admonishing. doesn't have to be a negative thing. It can be kind of done subtly. An example of that, of using a little bit of wit and creativity in teaching and admonishing, that same coin. This is a picture from the Canlis restaurant in Seattle. I've never been inside. I think the water on the table costs $50. It's up on top of Lake Union. It looks down. It's this amazing, I think it's, as far as I know, the most formal, most expensive, most beautiful, best food restaurant that exists in Washington State. And the story goes at this restaurant where they have like you know, 12 maitre d's and 17 waiters for every table. I mean, it's just you're, you're guided in very carefully. This guy comes in to get, he's got money. He comes in to get, have a meal and he sits down and he's a little bit of a rube. He doesn't really understand social graces or how you act in a big fancy restaurant. I'm not sure I would know either. But the first thing he does when he gets down and gets seated by the 12 different servants is he takes his napkin and tucks it in to his collar and kind of spreads it on the table and gets his knife and fork like this. Now, everybody at this restaurant goes silent. Goodness, you know, all these elite people. And the waiter could chew this guy out and totally humiliate him. Or the waiter could do something with a little bit of grace attached to it, a little bit of wit, a little bit of cleverness, and just walks up to the guy and just leans right down in his ears and goes, sir, I see by your napkin, uh, shave or a haircut, sir. And so the guy chuckles, and he realizes what he's done. And every, everybody's preserved. No one got embarrassed, but there was admonishment, and there was teaching in, a, obviously, a very small example. But it works. It, it's personal. There was, there was thought by the teacher's part, if you will, to not embarrass the person. There was love, a little bit of grace attached to that. So there was relationship. There was sentiment. And that's really important. Equally important, and I don't want to pass over this, but how we accept admonishment is worth discussing. Because in American culture, you know, we celebrate the individual. We celebrate the rebel. That's, that's important to us. And so when somebody admonishes us or tries to teach us, we frequently don't take it well. And in the church, we need to look at that as something we do for each other all the time. Now, I'm in the position right now where I'm, stand, I'm literally standing up. I'll stand down. I'm teaching. That doesn't mean I don't need instruction all the time. And it's all mutual. We do this for one another. And uh, I think an important part of understanding teaching and admonishing is not saying, okay, when the pastor teaches, I've got to really take that well and just, you know, not argue with them. But I need to, when everybody, I need to try to teach and admonish the pastor. I need to be taught and admonish from one another. And that this, all of us are having mutual submission to the Word and to Jesus Christ and recognizing that Gary is an amazingly smart guy, and I, I would, you know, with great trepidation, argue with him about anything on wisdom, but he's not perfect. We all need to be together on that, and it's something we should be known for. We teach and admonish, because it says we. It doesn't say, oh, everybody get taught and admonished from your senior pastor. It talks about we, and it's everyone. It might be a different context. It might be something simple. But again, we don't put each other on a pedestal, but we look out for one another. And like that waiter, we take the other person's 
feelings, if you will, into concern when we do that. And the goal should always be what we come back to, this idea of maturing people, and we'll move from there. So admonishing and teaching with great love is our goal. That's what we're supposed to be known for. It makes me feel very good when I've gone to large sporting events. There always seems to be somebody that says they're a Christian that has a sign that says something like, repent for the end is near, and they have a PA system, and they're just screaming at people. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You need to do... I, of course, cringe because, you know, they're on my team, and uh, there's no relationship there. There's no sense of love. There's no sense of, I want to have a relationship with you. It's just this one-sided pushing out, and there's a place for that, certainly, but the goal, that's not what this is talking about. There's a sense of relationship has to be better than that. In fact, it even tells us we don't just admonish and teach. How do we do it? With all wisdom. So let's take a look at wisdom. What is, what is wisdom? Well, you take a look in the Bible, and probably the best start of an explanation is in Proverbs 15.33. Fear of the Lord is the instruction for all wisdom and before honor comes humility. So wisdom is about having a healthy respect, understanding of the Lord, and it's about being done kind of with gentleness, not being proud. Krista always likes the uh, old Groucho Marx quote about wisdom. There's knowledge and there's wisdom. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting a tomato in a fruit salad. not bad. Applied wisdom, if you will. Um, We proclaim him by admonishing and teaching with all wisdom, and we do it for everybody. And our goal is the next step, which is kind of the, why are we doing this? Why do we proclaim? Why do we admonish and teach? Well, Paul says it right there. So that we may present every man as complete in Christ. This is the prayer of anyone in leadership. This is Gary's goal, if you will, is presenting everyone as complete in Christ. We all have the same goal, but again, there's kind of a special emphasis for leaders on that. So present is what we want to take a look at, this final verb, presenting. Pretty straightforward. The definition of present is to set apart, to place, uh, or to place something for use. Put, Put something in place for use is to present. Uh, It might parallel if you pass your driving test. When you first get to be a license, you're presented with a license. You you present yourself as, yes, I've earned a license, and you have a a little piece of plastic to prove that. The grammar is timeless here. In fact, there's kind of unique grammar here. It kind of... Paul uses some grammar here that kind of highlights it and says, kind of like, pay attention to this. And it's a timeless principle, which we'll refer back to, which is important, because that's the goal of the church in Colossae, is to present people as complete. It's the goal of Grace Point, Ephrata, to present people as complete. It's the goal of Great Praise Church in Macau, and it's going to be the goal of Grace Point, Ephrata, a thousand years from now, if we're still around. Present everyone as complete in Christ. So, presenting as complete... If you look at the word complete, it talks about being perfect, matured, uh, perfected with integrity, working correctly. Anybody feel perfect? (laughs) I know I don't. Uh, 
So maybe that's not the best definition in context. The best definition in context is matured enough for what comes next. Matured enough for what comes next. Not perfect, not free from sin, but solid. Mature enough to withstand challenges. Uh, I think it says in Ephesians, to no longer be children tossed by waves and every wind of doctrine. Grounded is a good word for mature or complete. So that word complete, it's, it's not perfect. It means you're kind of ready for the next step. If only there was an example of somebody finishing something that prepares that they're ready for the next step. Gosh, what would have happened in the last 50 hours or so in Ephrata? Oop, I forgot to put that up there. There's that bit. Moving on. There we go. Meredith, what's graduation called? Commencement. Good job. That wasn't scripted, by the way. That was purely her being right there and ready. Commencement. The beginning. So graduation, we tend to think of, hey, you finished high school. Great job, everybody. But really, it's the beginning. Commencement is the same term. It would equate well with complete in Christ. You've graduated. Does that mean you know everything? Heck no. Does that mean you are perfect? Absolutely not. Does it mean you've completed the basics, you're not going to get messed up, and you're ready to learn something new? Yes. So I have three examples for you of people that are ready for the next step. First one is Damien Mata. I don't know if you remember Damien. He's here from time to time. He just graduated this weekend from Columbia Basin Technical uh, School in Moses Lake. He's got a um, finished off, did a lot of hands-ons, kind of welding as his orientation. And Damien will be going to get more school for welding. He's going to be ready to go into the workforce, and he wants to have all the skills. He completed his basics, and now he's ready for more advanced training. Complete, as far as the school goes, his welding skills, parallel to being complete in Christ. The other one, Meredith Plagerman, has finished her schooling at Ephrata High School, did some stuff at Big Bend, uh, honor. She had lots of cords around her neck on graduation night, saying that she's done some amazing things and will be going to Pacific Lutheran uh, in the fall, ready to take the next step, ready to learn more, ready to go on. Perfect example of this. But we have a third graduate also who's not here today, but I, I kind of feel like it's important to point this out because he's graduating from a certain university in the Seattle area with purple and gold. And uh, that'll be his commencement coming up. But Brant Monson will be graduating with a degree in aeronautic and astronautic engineering. Um, this is a great picture because he's there with his NASA ID badge and pocket protector. He's throwing up the Vulcan salute. And he's saying, yes, I am a rocket scientist. <laughs> and so he'll be graduating next week uh, from the University of Washington. Is he a perfect engineer? Is he ready to go to work for NASA and design stuff? No but he's ready for the next step. He'll be going to the University of Michigan to continue his engineering studies. So three people graduating that we have some pretty close association with in our church, they're not perfect. They're not completed. They don't know everything. They might think they do, but for the most part, as you get to this age, you realize how much you don't know, and they're ready for the next step. As Christians, as a church, our goal is to present each other not as perfect Christians, not as fully sanctified, and that, nope, we have no more room to grow. I am perfectly conformed to Jesus Christ. No, it's to be just ready for the next step, 
to be mature enough to get the advanced training and then move on from there. Graduation, graduates, perfect example of this. So let's kind of put this together a little bit, kind of put this in a little, uh, move on to kind of finish up the what does this verse mean? We proclaim him admonishing and teaching so that we may present everybody's complete in Christ. Start backwards. We grow people to maturity through warning and teaching everyone, which is how we proclaim Jesus Christ. Our thing we do is to warn and teach to make people mature, which is how we proclaim Jesus Christ. And that's all of us. We're all involved in that, and we're all involved on the other side of of getting matured and taught. And that's what we're supposed to be about. We're ready for service. We want to present each other as ready to go take the next step, which is kind of exciting. So if we come back to our original question, what is our purpose as a church? That's it right there. To proclaim Jesus Christ by maturing believers in him. Or to put it another way, to help people out of holes. Because we're always tripping on holes, folks. I'm in a couple holes right now. You're in a couple holes right now. We've got to help each other out of that. So we talked about what the verse says. We talked about what the verse means. And now it's kind of the so what part, which I call application, which is kind of typical. Here's what's important. is the first bit, what does it say, what does it mean? You can take that stuff to the bank. That's pretty important. But application, that's up to you. I'm going to tell you what I came away with as application, and you can take it or leave it, but I think the important part here is you're getting my opinion now, whereas the other stuff is kind of based on some pretty good stuff in the Word. This part, though, kind of up to you to think about. I think this is all about relationships. I think everything we talked about, about how do you look at this verse and what do you do about it, comes down to having relationships with one another starting with number one, which is our relationship with Jesus Christ and his word, and that needs to deepen. There's no set level. That has to grow. If it's not growing, you're saying you're perfect? You don't need to be more like Jesus Christ? That doesn't make sense. So I don't care how old you are. I don't care if you're 10 or if you're 80. Your relationship with Jesus Christ should be growing. That's the point of that. That's what we're supposed to do. Your relationship with Christ is your sword and your shield. It's about doing this together and about we can do something for him. Again, it's about having that relationship with him. The second part is our relationships within Grace Point, within the local church. The deeper the relationships, the more likely it is we notice when our friend trips and falls in the hole. When you trip and fall in a hole, if you've got a good relationship, somebody's going to be there to help you out. And that's on mutual accountability. You need to be the person that says, help. And you need to be the person who's kind of looking for each other, saying, did somebody trip and fall in a hole? Okay, that's kind of that, how we apply That's the relationship. If you don't have a tight relationship, you're not going to notice when you trip. You're not going to notice uh, when maybe you're on the wrong path. Because you kind of reject that. Good relationships make it easier to teach and admonish. Good relationships mean that we have things essentially are unselfish. To have a good relationship on some level means you have to be a little unselfish and look at the world not through your perspective but through others' perspective. And you know, it's easy in our culture not to have a face-to-face relationship. We've got all these great substitutions of texting and Facebook and there's, there's TV preachers, okay? There's nothing wrong with any of that per se. There's nothing wrong with having a Facebook relationship. But does it have the same weight? Does it have the same 
depth of feeling? Is somebody on Facebook going to come haul you out of the hole when you get in trouble? Is that TV preacher going to be there for you? No. It's your relationship here. There's a reason we're all here at Grace Point. And if you haven't formed those tight relationships, I, I, get in a life group, folks. Make those tight relationships because you're going to need them. Or somebody's going to need you, and you need to have those relationships with them. People that don't form tight relationships tend not to stick places. They float from place to place, and that's a whole different argument. Let's go to number three. Your relationships with the community and the outside part, kind of in, our, in the world and around town. This comes back to that idea of what are you proclaiming through your actions? Are you wearing the uniform of Christ through your actions? Are you wearing a different uniform? What are you known for? And looking for opportunities to build deeper relationships. We went to, to China, and the, the main part of our thing in China that we reported on was to form relationships in a partnership with three churches in Macau. That was the goal. That, was that, that, that fits right into this verse. Not a coincidence. We, Paul and I both preached on this verse while we were there. might be why this is on my mind. Um, around town. Um, this is kind of a, a slightly negative one, but um, I like to have breakfast and have breakfast meetings at different places around town. There's amazing cultures at different restaurants and what, they, what groups, usually men, always men, um, that get together and have the, you know, have coffee and talk. And there was one restaurant was talking to the waitress and got on the subject. And there was a group of guys, um, church guys, kind of were having a meeting. No one from here, so everybody can relax. I ended up talking to the waitress a little bit and uh, got on different subjects. But what came up was, wow, those guys are really angry. Well, what do you mean? Well, they just all they do is talk about what they don't like how mad they are at the president, how mad they are at the election, how everything's wrong, everything's bad, country's going downhill. And I don't know if that was a perception on her part, and I don't know how accurate that was, but her takeaway was, here's a group of people from a church meeting there to have a Bible study, and what she is hearing is nothing but how these guys are against things. That was really convicting to me, because I, I worry about, okay, now what am I saying? What are people overhearing... What am I talking about? Am I known for the guy that's mad at Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and blah, 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 blah? Or am I known talking about positive things about Jesus Christ? That was really convicting to hear that from that waitress. And so I worry about our, my relationship in the outside world and how I'm relating to people. And the fourth one is other churches. Hope this doesn't come as a surprise, but we're not the only Christian church in the city of Ephrata. We're not the only Christian church in the world. We can have partnerships with other churches because we're all kind of doing the same work. And yes, there's differences, and some of them are important. Some of them aren't that important, though. Some of them are just interesting. And so this painting that Tobin did for us, and we took to Macau as a gift, the, the part that's really cool is this right here, the friendship bridge. I, I, that comes back to me all the time, that this symbol in Macau of friendship, and it's a bridge. And bridges don't go one way. They go both ways. We can walk out, they can walk out, we need to keep the people going out, and we look at all these different relationships. To me, they all come down to having that good relationship, and how do we proclaim Christ together? And that's helping people out of the hole. Because on any level, each one of us has a hole that we're in right now, and each one of us is probably helping somebody out of a hole. And you might say, well, I can't help anybody out of the hole. I'm stuck in a hole myself. The hole might be illness, it might be money, it might be relationships with parents, it might be, it could be anything. It could be cancer, it could be, there's a lot of holes out there. 
But just because you're in one doesn't mean you can't help somebody else out of one. Ask the Stevens ministry. That's, what, that's their mission statement. I guess if you want to use holes as the example of it, it would probably fit. But everybody's in a hole, and it's the relationship we have with Jesus Christ and with one another that helps people out of it, and it's how we're proclaiming one another. That's how we're proclaiming Jesus Christ, is helping one another out. Being in a relationship that deepens and grows and can be used. I'd like to be a church that's known for jumping into holes. Maybe we are. Maybe we aren't. Maybe we're not good at that. Maybe we're not good at accepting help. Maybe sometimes people are in the hole and we say, nah, I'm good in the hole. I don't want help. But I'd like to, I think we're called to be that people. People that listen to admonishment and teaching and take it well. People that have unselfish relationships. That's how we praise. That's how we proclaim him. And that is what the scripture says. And that's how we're going to try to proclaim Jesus Christ. And that's the purpose I believe, of Grace Point Church. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you so much that you've given us your word in a language we understand, that we can sit before you with great confidence because of what you've done for us, that we can gather before you with freedom, and that, Lord, through our actions, imperfect as they may be, we attempt to proclaim you. And that, Lord, we, uh, in our limited understanding and our ability to love that is flawed. Uh, Lord, we do want to be people that are about loving your people and proclaiming you through teaching, through having great relationships with one another that are based on you. And Father, we thank you for this morning that we have. We thank you for the success of our graduates that have uh, completed this first step of their life and are ready for the next step. And Father, uh, this morning we ask you to protect them, to honor them, and Lord, as they uh, are uh, we trust grounded well in you for the what comes next and the challenges that face them. Uh, now as we close out this time of instruction, and Father, we return to you in worship, uh, the love that you've shown us. We ask that all of our worship and our uh, singing, Father, would be empowered by your spirit. And in this we ask in Jesus' name, amen.